a private home in Oakland, California, a solstice gathering of local musicians is underway. It's an annual June event that started 35 years earlier. There is Away drumming from Ghana in the yard, led by Sike Ladzekpo, a master drummer who came here from Ghana to teach at UC Berkeley in 1973 and never left. In the garage, a former drummer from Felakuti's band is leading an Afrobeat jam. And there is another freeform session going down in the living room, all part of the flow. Colinet with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. Today we bring you the amazing story of the first metropolis in America to host a rich roster of local African bands. Not New York, not Miami, not Chicago, no, it's San Francisco's Bay Area. And it starts long before there was Graceland or fell on Broadway or even uh, Afropop Worldwide. Hmm? We take you back to the early 1970s with San Francisco Afropop by the Bay. And our principal guide on this journey is this gentleman. Hello, Ken. My name is Ken Okololo, but I'm generally known by a title which is offered to only people who have families, which is Baba. So my full name these days is Baba Ken Okololo. Baba Ken's story begins in high-life bands in the Niger River Delta region of Nigeria. And as he told us, it's a long story. But by the time he reached San Francisco in the early 80s, he knew he'd found a special place. The Bay Area had it all. It was a mecca for, you know, world music. It's a combination of music of the African diaspora and music of the world. I love it here. I don't think there's any other state in America that I would rather stay than the Bay Area because it's a community that thrives with people from all over the world. It's been home for me for almost 30 years. I have my family here and life is good. <laughs> and Baba created that family with his wife, Jackie Gay Wilson, whom he met in the Bay Area. In fact, they were introduced by another Nigerian singer who now lives in Oakland, Johnny Hastrup. More on Johnny's remarkable story in a moment. But first, Jackie has been involved in Bay Area African music since the early 70s. She says that was a special time. The hopefulness and optimism of the San Francisco 60s still lingered, and people were hungry for new things. Those days was pre-HIV. There was a lot more hope in our society that we were building something up that was moving forward. People were eager to meet people and open to things and the buzz. So that's, I think, what drew the crowds and I think that since then uh, people have gotten older and you can't just go out and hook up like you used to do, you know, which was one of the big fun things people were doing. On this program, we're going back to those freewheeling times. We'll hear how musicians from Ghana, Nigeria, South Africa and Zimbabwe 
helped to create an early hotbed of world music in and around San Francisco. To kick off, well, let's check out some music. Here's Baba Ken Okulolo's band, Kotoja, with their timeless cover of the Rex Lawson high-life hit, Sawale. Francisco Bay Area, Kotoja with their version of the High Life classic, Sawale. Georges Collinet here with San Francisco, Afropop by the Bay. On Afropop Worldwide, from PRI, Public Radio International. As I said earlier, San Francisco's African scene was primarily fueled by musicians from Ghana, Nigeria, and South Africa. We've mentioned C.K. Lazekpo from Ghana, who came in 1973 and taught many of the American musicians who would become part of the scene. A year later, musicians from the Ghanaian Afro-funk and high-life band Ejole Sounds arrived. To understand how that happened, we have to go back to a song recorded in Los Angeles in 1968. Uh, maybe you remember.
man, <laughs> that brings back memories. My old friend and carousing companion, Hugh Masekela, with his 1968 hit, Grazing in the Grass, the first and only song by an African musician to top the US pop charts. Manu Dibongo's Sol Makosa hit 35 on the Billboard charts in 1972. And I suppose we need to count Akon, but hey, that's different. Grazing in the Grass put the sound of South African pop in American ears, whether they knew it or not. When Hugh recorded this song, he had been in exile for 10 years, living the life of a globe-trotting musical gypsy. He was living large and partying hard, rubbing shoulders with music stars, politicians and big-time producers everywhere he went. Here's a track he recorded with none other than Herb Alpert, a massive star in those days. The song is Skokian by Zimbabwean jazzman August Masarurua. Skokian, played by Herb Alpert and Hugh Masekela in the early 1970s. That's right, 1970s. African popular music was creeping into the edges of mainstream American music a lot earlier than most people realize. But back to our story. In 1973, Hugh went to Lagos and spent some time jamming and hanging out with none other than Fela Kuti. Two peas in the pod, I tell you. In his autobiography, Still Grazing, Hugh writes that he poured his heart out to Fela. Fela, he said, I'm tired of having to write music down for the guys I've been playing with in the United States and taking hours to explain the feel and the groove. I know that musicians in this part of the world all play mostly by ear, like you and me. I know they will understand the grooves easily because of our similar beginnings in the way we were taught music. You, Fela replied, I know exactly what you're looking for. And a week later, they were in Accra, Ghana, checking out Hedjole sounds. Well, to cut a long story short, this was love at first sight. Hugh and Fela brought Hedjole to Lagos to record the band. That's the album we're hearing now, a classic. Hugh Masekela introducing Hedjole sounds. The lead track was a fisherman's high life called Rekpete.
Masekela brought Hedgeray Sounds to the U.S. for a tour, hoping that Herbal Pert would release the album. That didn't happen. But the tour went on, including a star-studded reception at L.A.'s Troubadour Club and a gig at the Fillmore in San Francisco. You recalled the Bay Area audience as, quote, the most receptive of our entire tour. Jackie Gay Wilson was there. There was this tour by Hugh Masekela, and then he brought Hedgehog Sounds to our area. And C.K. Ladzekpo, who is from the Ewe tribe in Ghana, had begun teaching African music and dance at UC Berkeley and at various places. So when they arrived here, they knew him. They were old homies, and he encouraged them to drop off here. Uh, and also O.J. had joined into that tour. Ah, yes, O.J., that's Nigerian maestro Orlando Julius, then known as O.J. Ekemode another important player in the story. Well, you might imagine the Hedjole musicians had found paradise in their collaboration with Hugh Masekela. The music was a powerful merger of Ghanaian and South African ideas, and by all accounts, it was red hot on stage. and Hedjole Sounds with Longuta. It's based on a Shangan Tsonga folk song warning about the dangers rural folks face in the big city. It could have been a metaphor for those Ghanaian musicians coming to America. The music was great, but there were problems. And after the tour, the Hedjole musicians decided to cut their ties with Hugh and with their Ghanaian manager, Faisal Helwani. The core of the band decided to make a fresh start from a new base in Santa Cruz, not far from San Francisco. This is where Nigerian singer and composer Johnny Hastrup comes in. Banning air. Johnny Hastrup was born in 1947 to a royal clan in Yoruba land, Nigeria. His great-grandfather adapted the Danish name Hastrup. Johnny didn't know why. He did know his royal blood barred him from becoming a professional musician. But that didn't stop him. He attended concerts by visiting Juju and High Life bands and spent hours by the family's wind-up gramophone learning the latest rock and soul hits from abroad. Johnny started playing Penny Whistle and then guitar. He traveled to Lagos with his brother's band and soon found himself auditioning as a singer with Victor Elia and the Cool Cats. Victor Elia led one of the top high-life bands in Nigeria, and it's worth mentioning that aside from Johnny Hastrup, O.J. Akamode, 
Babakan Okololo, and even Felakuti himself all played in Olaya's band at one time or another. Johnny was still finishing high school when he became the band's soul singer, covering James Brown and Wilson Pickett numbers and earning a national reputation. I was selected by the media as Soul Brother number one in 67. Soul Brother number one in 1967. Now, if you're having a little trouble understanding Johnny, that's partly because we spoke by phone in our first interview. It's also because Johnny has suffered a series of strokes in recent years, and they've affected his speech, though apparently not his memory. Johnny told me about his unusual friendship with Fela Kuti. When Fela came back from music school in London in the mid-60s, Johnny said Fela felt superior to local musicians in Lagos. Johnny was singing with Victor Eli at the Afro Spot, the same club where Fela performed with his high-life jazz band Kula Lobitos. So when Fela was getting ready to go to Los Angeles to look for contracts for his band, Johnny offered to sing in Fela's place. The reception to that idea was, well, let's just say, cool. The first time I went to ask Fela if I could sing in with his band, he looked at me and said, Johnny Astor, I know you're a big star in so music world. You can't sing with my band. You can't sing my song with my band because you don't understand jazz. You can't sing my songs with my band because you don't understand jazz. And I said to him, I said, Fella, try me. Because I got the best ears in the world for music. Fela did try Johnny, and the two became good friends. Turns out that Fela had secretly admired Johnny's singing for years. When Fela returned from L.A., he launched his new band, Africa 70. That's around the time iconic rock drummer Ginger Baker began visiting Nigeria and struck up his own friendship with Fela. One night, at the Afro spot, Baker heard Johnny covering a Sly Stone song and invited the singer to his table for a drink. Before he knew it, Johnny was on a flight to London to join Ginger Baker's band. adventure in Europe with Ginger Baker is an epic in itself. But let's just say the guy learned a lot. He got introduced to Eastern spirituality, starting with transcendental meditation, and later became a Buddhist. He also learned about rock music, how to write songs, how to arrange for a rock band, and the importance of the jam session. When Johnny got back to Nigeria, he was done with cover songs. He wanted to compose and make statements. He organized jam sessions of his own, picked the best musicians, and formed a band called Mono Mono. That's a Yoruba word for lightning, and for Johnny, it signified the sudden arrival of awareness. With Mono Mono, so much comes together. Soul music, Afrobeat, rock jam sessions, and blooming spirituality. Here's Mono Mono. Troubles everywhere without any guns. 
hit was a song called Give the Beggar a Chance off their debut album by the same name. The inspiration came near the end of Johnny's time in London after he'd been subjected to condescending, even racist treatment. For Johnny, this was the first time in his life he'd been made to feel like a beggar. I started thinking about in Nigeria we have beggars who came from the north. Houses to beg for money. Johnny's talking about houses, people from the north of Nigeria coming to the capital to beg. And they had a chant. Yara Sudanga. Yara Sudanga. That means give me some money or give me something. So I went home, I took on my guitar. I sang that song all night. And that was how I composed. Oh, so what, what do, do you, you need, need from a better? 
debut album in 1971. Mono Mono shook up the scene in Lagos around the same time Fela's Africa 70 was on the rise. The two bands used to do double bills, so when Hugh Masekela made his fateful visit to meet Fela in 1973, he heard Johnny singing with Mono Mono. Johnny had the most beautiful voice, writes Hugh in his autobiography, and a great personality. We encouraged him to come to America and try to break into the music industry there, because we were convinced he would make it. Soon after that, Capitol Records released Mono Mono's second album and brought Johnny to the U.S. to promote it. That's how he first came to California. Also important were some Nigerian businessmen who helped fund the travel and ambitions of musicians like Johnny Hastrup and O.J. Akamode. As it turned out, these guys didn't know much about the music industry and couldn't do a lot more than that. Johnny hooked up with the Hedgelay Sounds guys for some gigs, and by the time he went to live in Oakland in 1979, O.J. Akamode was also in the area performing and recording. There was starting to be a real scene. Jackie Gay Wilson remembers. There was this big buzz going on, and the music, it is largely about the buzz. So here was the world beat movement, originating in Berkeley, had been started by Salsa de Berkeley, but now it was Hedgele Sounds was in town, so the Spear was in town, OJ was in town, Johnny was in town, and Big City was going on, and Mapensi. And they were blasting it out at Ashkenaz, extremely popular there, and festivals. There was a place in the city called The Farm, and people believed that this was going to be the next thing after reggae. Thanks, Jackie, and thanks, Banning. Now, to be clear, some of the bands and venues Jackie just mentioned come a little bit later in the story. The so-called Bay Area World Beat scene, centered around the Oakland nightclub Ashkenaz, really blossomed in the 1980s. All that and more coming up. You can read excerpts from our interviews about Bay Area African musicians and see photos on our website, afropop.org. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. a touring South African theatrical show called Ipitombi played in Johannesburg, London, and on Broadway before touring U.S. cities. In 1977, 
key players in the show's band settled in Oakland, California and started the band Zulu Spear, founded by Sechabe Makwena. Coming from apartheid South Africa in the tumultuous aftermath of the Soweto uprising in 1976, well, these guys were especially happy to find a new home in America. And their joyous vibe hit the spot with the Bay Area fans. Formed in 1979, Zulu Spear is one of the few Bay Area bands of the era that still performs today. Baba Ken Okulolo had a special appreciation for Zulu Spear. It was something new for him. He still celebrates the caliber of these Bay Area African bands. They were all very good. Especially Zulu Spear, they had a show with their spears and their bull dance and they had some girls at that time. It was just a nice thing to watch. White people ate it up. I mean, they just love it. Here's Zulu Spear with Studla.
yes, that's very nice. The song is Studla and the band is Zulu Spear, a bedrock act in the San Francisco Bay Area world beat scene of the 1980s. Synchro! Synchro system! Synchro system! In 1982, Nigeria's Juju music pioneer, King Sonyade, launched his first U.S. tour. He had been signed to Island Records, and in 1983, he earned a Grammy nomination for the album Synchro System. Sonny Ade never did become the next Bob Marley, but he sure had an impact. For one thing, his 1983 concert in Berkeley, California was a key inspiration for Sean Barlow to create this radio program. And Sonny Ade had a direct effect on the growing African music scene in the Bay Area. On the band's second tour in 1984, Baba Ken Okulolo was playing bass. I was there, I was the bass player. That was a very successful tour. And during that tour at Greek Theater here in Berkeley, OJ came out there. He came to the show and said, you know, I'm coming to Nigeria to record an album. And after the recording, I want to bring the band over here to promote the album. Can you get me a band together? Now, Baba Ken had had quite a career in Nigeria up to that point. He had led groups of his own and played with some of the greats, including Victor Olaya, OJ Kemode, and Johnny Hastrop's Mono Mono, where he was the original bass player. So when OJ asked him to put a band together, Baba Ken knew what to do. He assembled a big, powerful group. Now all they needed was OJ and his tenor saxophone. So he came as promised, album was done, video was done, then got rehearsed for almost a year, and then took off, finally, from Nigeria to here. I still remember the date, it was October 1st, 1985. We landed in JFK and took an old bus, and we traveled across the country to Vancouver. Jackie Gay Wilson also remembers this tour because that's how she met her future husband. The fact is that when they got to the airport, they were put into this bus that had been used in the Marilyn Monroe movie of Bus Stop, which was made in the 50s, except, whoops, it was 20-something years later, 30-something years. So this raggedy bus, they had no hotels, no stops for showers. They drove them straight to Vancouver. They did the gig there. Then they came down here, and they did a gig at Wolfgang's. And that was the night that Johnny said, hey, let's go see, you know, our buddies that have just arrived here. And he introduced me to Baba. Let's listen to a little of O.J. Kemode and the night. Nigerian All-Stars, as his Bay Area band eventually became known. All 
right, OJ Kemode and his Nigerian All-Stars. This band, which OJ led for years, was created out of that 1985 tour that washed up in San Francisco. Babaken picks up the story. So everything was up and in the air when we arrived. Things were not properly put together. Part of the tour was already canceled and we just did a few dates, one here and one in LA, and everything stopped here. We were just stranded. I mean, we're talking about 18 people. The tour managers held on to those 18 passports and plane tickets until the visas and tickets had expired. They held on to them because they just wanted to keep us together, not to just ask on and go away. But it was a bad thing to do because some of us would have gone back to our families. But we couldn't go and there was no money. And if you say you're coming to America, you can't go back home empty-handed, you know. You got to show something for it. So some of us just say, okay, if that's the situation, we just stay here and, you know, and see what we can do with our lives here. And that's how these 18 African musicians arrived to nurture the Bay Area's burgeoning African music scene. Among them were most of the original members of Johnny Hatstrup's Mono Mono, also Fela's star trumpet player, Tunde Williams, and percussionist Sikuru Adepoju, who went on to fame with Mickey Hart's Grammy Award-winning Planet Drum Project. There were conflicts and rivalries among the musicians. OJ wanted to keep them in his own band, but many were broke and disappointed. Baba Ken decided to form his own band called Kotoja, which basically means it's not worth fighting over. Toja started out playing contemporary Afrofusion, Afrofunk. That's a carryover from Monomono's style of music. I call it an extension of Monomono's music. The goal then was here we are in America. And even though we don't speak the same language per se, the music speaks for itself. And it makes your soul want to jump up and celebrate life. African music wants to make you feel alive, make you want to feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself. Baba Ken quickly realized he had landed in a city that was primed to appreciate African music of many sorts. There was Zulu Spear, there was Mapenzi, Big City, South of the Berkeley. There were several of them. And the popular places we were playing were Ashkenaz. Sometimes they would book each band playing there three nights a week and the place was packed. Uh, African music was just hot then. Ashkenaz started as a dance hall in Berkeley in 1973. It was founded by the late David Nadell, a human rights activist and folk dancer. Johnny Hastrup claims that he's the one who convinced David to start booking live bands in the hall in 1979. Well, however it happened, Ashkenaz became a mecca for global music bands in the Bay Area. And it's still going strong today. Kotoja got its first gig there, opening for Zulu Spear. Jackie Gay Wilson remembers. The first time they came out at Ashkenaz on a Thursday night, and the poster 
that we wrote up, and he and I posted it all over town, was basically saying, these are members of King Sunny Day's band, Fela's band, Hedgeley Sounds, all these names that people knew. And that venue that had 175 capacity sold 600 tickets that night. So that was how eager and into it people were. Well, think of it. It's 1986. Paul Simon is about to release Graceland. And a club in Berkeley is booking local African bands for three nights running and having lines around the block every night. Amazing. Kotocha got a huge boost around 1990 when an international clothing entrepreneur chanced upon a gig they were playing in Golden Gate Park. The man in question was Dan Storper and the experience was the catalyst for his founding one of the most successful world music record labels ever, Putumayo. Dan told us the story over lunch in New York a few years back. You know, I think life is often a series of somewhat serendipitous circumstances, occasions, happenings, and I was uh, walking through Golden Gate Park and without really any consciousness or thought about it, 
I started hearing some sounds. I just kind of obliquely heard music playing, and it sounded interesting. So I said, let me just walk over and check it out. And there was a group of maybe 70, 80 people and an African band performing. And it was literally their last, say, two songs. It was a group called Katoja. And I stopped in my tracks. There was something about the music that was so captivating and so uplifting. The crowd was rapturous, even though it was a small crowd. There was an Asian woman dancing with an African-American guy. And I was struck you know, by that magic moment where somehow all the cares, all the worries, seemed to disappear. There was just great music and people having a good time in a beautiful setting in Golden Gate Park. Quite a story. From a failed Nigerian tour comes a Bay Area band that winds up inspiring the creation of America's most successful world music record label. How about that? But as we've been telling you, the Bay Area scene was not about any one band or style. It was high life, juju, Afrofunk, salsa, Zulu pop, and also a spillover effect from Zimbabwe. The Zimbabwean connection goes back to the hugely influential Zimbabwean musician and educator Dumisani Marairi, who began teaching at the University of Washington in 1968. Now, Seattle's African music history deserves its own Afropop program, but let's just say that by the early 1980s, Dumisani's students had fanned out to a number of cities, including San Francisco. Brett Stewart was a superb marimba player and guitarist who came home to the Bay Area and started the band Mapenzi in 1983. Mapenzi is Shona for crazy people, and from what we hear, well, they lived up to their name. Mapenzi was also one of the most popular bands of the Bay Area World Beat era. Here they are with one of their hits, Keep On Dancing.
The band Mapenzi, champions of the Bay Area world beat scene in the 1980s. Well, sadly, Mapenzi's founder and driving force, Brett Stewart, died in 2012. But his memory lives on. As the 80s ended, the Bay Area scene reached its peak. Mapenzi was part of a collective of bands that often performed together under the world beat banner. Zulu Spear, Big City, The Freaky Executives, The Looters, and Mapenzi packed festival spaces and even Berkeley's Greek theater. The term world beat would eventually go out of fashion, but the music that had taken root in the Bay Area had by then gone national, even international. And for better or worse, world music was now upon us. Funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art, and PRI, Public Radio International affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. As for Badaken, though the audiences are smaller these days, he keeps busy. He has his African drumming ensemble, the West African Highlife Band, and he can still pull together a contemporary version of Kotoja if the occasion calls for it. He also has an acoustic group called the Nigerian Brothers. The songs are songs that I grew up listening to, village songs, folk songs, actually, Pawan music. <laughs> the music you listen to in the afternoon after a hard day's work and you sit under the tree with your palm wine keg, uh, sipping it and uh, just singing and having fun. Yo, mama, yo, mama. Nigerian brothers with Salotu, a village song about a young man in love. My beautiful sweetheart, he sings, I would marry her today if only her parents would consent. Well, we're wrapping 
wrapping up our time travel journey to the early days of African music in San Francisco. If you'd like to hear more about African music in American cities, drop us a line at info at afropop.org. We know there are many untold stories out there, so don't hold back. And you can stream more programs from our Africa in America series on our website, afropop.org, and on SoundCloud. Thanks to Johnny Hastrup, Baba Kenokuloro, Jackie Gay Wilson, Ian Stewart, Edley Loudon, and Nora Balaban for their help with this program. Visit afropop.org for more on the San Francisco World Beat era. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Banning Air. And join us next week for another edition of Afropop Worldwide. Our chief photo engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan and Stephanie Lebeau. Banning Air edits our website, afropop.org. Our producer for new media is Atane Ofiadja. And I'm Georges Collinet.